warning. The Catholic Man Show contains high levels of manliness. If you think you may be too weak to withstand the manliness represented in the following program, please do yourself a favor and stop listening now. If you choose to continue in spite of this warning, if at any time you feel yourself overcome by the manliness, stop immediately and consult your closest medical professional. And now, for the not-so-fair, faint, or frilly, we present The Catholic Man Show. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We are on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. I'm Adam Minahan, sitting here in studio with my dear friends David Niles and Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers. Carlo, great to have you here. You guys have upped your game. <laughs> yes. That intro was a freaking plus, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Adam wrote that. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. That was Thanks. really cool. Mm -hmm. The Thanks. voice was great. The script was great. Yeah, I did the voice. No, he did. The music was great. <laughs> it had the harmonica in there, some southern blues. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. It made me want to crank out my accordion, man. It just like jam <laughs> with get it. Get going. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Bring back the feeling of the good old days on the bandstand, man. Bon ton. Wait, what is it? Bon, bon ton. Bon ton. Bon ton. is good time all the time. But then, uh, les les bon temps relay. That's kind of like the, the famous phrase in Louisiana, let the good times roll. Okay. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do here, right? We're going to let the good times roll. And that's essentially French. You yes. speaking yeah. French. Yeah. yeah. That's French. Yeah. Les les bon temps relay. So that is French. Yeah. It's not like French. It's French. Well, I don't know exactly how it would be said, like if you're from France, but yeah. that's how we say it in Louisiana. Yeah. Okay. Which is not total. Proper. So it's French. basically French. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I've always, I've, you know, that's what I thought. Yeah. But, but that's some, that's something you guys do here on the Catholic Man Show, right? Y'all totally let the good times roll. Yeah. Yes. I try to do that. I do. I know I have a lot of fun. I don't know about everybody else, but I know I personally have a lot of fun. Amen to that. Yeah. So. Even if no one was listening, I think we'd do it just for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I totally agree. I know the feeling, brother. I know the feeling. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is a special episode of the Catholic Mansion. We normally, if this is your first time listening, we open review and enjoy a man beverage. We highlight a man gear, and then we have a manly topic. However, because we have a special guest in studio with us, namely Carlo Broussard, there's a lot of things to, to cover. So we're going to kind of skip the man gear today. We're, it's it's the morning time that we're recording, so we're not going to be drinking. Yeah. We're drinking a little bit of coffee, which is a manly beverage. Amen. But also, I think it's a... <clears throat> excuse me. We're having coffee, because you said it's in the morning, but also, Carlo, you don't drink. And this is a question that we get a lot about, oh, drinking, or what if you're hanging out with... Well, you have a friend who... Sure. They, don't, they don't drink. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a good time to mention, and just bring it up, that you shouldn't be drinking just... Because you want to have a drink, or you know, it, you should. It's best to drink with people. Um, I, I don't think that you have to always have company to have a drink. I like to sometimes sit outside on my back porch. Sure. I watch the sunset with a glass of scotch, maybe a, a cigar, yeah. and um, some of the best prayer time. Sure. 
uh, that I've ever had. So it's not like if you're drinking by yourself in that situation, it's bad. But no, no, you know, no. ideally, that's, you want to have company, fellowship with a drink. But if the people you're hanging out with, if they don't drink, then you know you should be uh, respectful. Hospitable. Hospitable. Yeah, that's the word I'm, I'm thinking of. Yeah. Especially that depending would, on the reason why. That's they don't right. Drink. That's what I was about to say. Right. I mean, it all depends on the reason. Like, I don't drink because I just don't like it. <laughs> it just doesn't taste good. It doesn't jive with my taste buds. If yeah. it doesn't taste like Kool Aid, I, I can't drink it. <laughs> Seriously, you know. And it's just something. Just all throughout my life, I just never cared for it. Yeah. You know, beer mm-hmm. or even wine. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I drink a glass of wine every once in a while, but I just it just tastes like cough syrup. <laughs> You know, it's like I grew up on cough syrup because I was always sick. And so I'm like tired of cough syrup and I don't want to drink any more cough syrup. (laughs) But those those are not. Yeah. But those the reasons why I don't drink. I'm not going to be offended. Right. If you scandalized or or tempted. Right. Right. However, if, for example, you're in the presence of someone who may be a recovering alcoholic. Mm -hmm. That is a situation where you need to be cognizant of their situation and their condition and not drink in front of them. Right. You know, like, for example, my my mom and dad are recovering alcoholics and they were severe alcoholics when I was a young boy. And they had split up with the intention of getting a divorce, but they sobered up by the grace of God, got Mm. back together, and they've been sober ever since, not touching a drop of alcohol, right? And I remember (laughs) I remember one time when I was like trying this whole wine thing, right? Where my wife and I were drinking wine and all of this, yada yada. And we were back home and I we uh, went and spent we went to my mom and dad's for like the day or we spent the night or something like that, and I brought a bottle of wine. And my dad said, boy, get that you-know-what out of here. <laughs> you know, and, and that was a fault on my part. Like, I wasn't respectful of right. his condition, you know, and his recovery. And I, I was at fault for that. Yeah. And so you bring up a very good point. And even for somebody who may have a position on it and think it's wrong in and of itself, I would judge they're wrong in their judgment, like that's a flawed judgment, However, if they are in that condition, if they are thinking like that, it would be uh, right and good and prudent for us to respect those sensibilities. And we see this in the first century of Christianity, right? I mean, with the deal with the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and all of these new Jewish, Jewish converts to Christianity who still had sensibilities concerning meat offered to idols and blood and, mm. and meat that, you know, of those animals that were strangled, rather, you know, where the blood wasn't drained out. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is constantly telling the first century Christians, listen, we know, technically speaking, we can eat these meats, right? There's nothing wrong with it, even though it was used in pagan worship and offered to idols, yada, yada. But in order to keep the peace and be respectful of our Jewish brethren who've converted, we're going to abstain from these things, right? Yeah. And and so it was out of respect for those sensibilities, even though technically they were in the right, they could have partaken of it, um, they, they respected those sensibilities and abstained. And so you, this is a very, very important point on how we need to be prudent and how we relate to others given their worldview and mm-hmm. given what they believe about things. So it's a very, very important point. Yeah, because really the point of having a drink together is to facilitate good conversation, yeah. uh, to facilitate brotherhood. And so if, if having a drink isn't facilitating those things, 
Mm-hmm. Then why, do why are you drinking? Right. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be con- it would contradict the very purpose of the conversation yeah. because you could imagine, you know, if I'm uncomfortable with alcohol for reasons that I think it's immoral, and you're just like sipping it away, I'm gonna be tense. I'm not gonna be open. I'm right, gonna be right. total. You know, the psych- psychology 101, man. The defense right. mechanism right. is gonna be going up, and so we're not gonna be able to foster any sort of friendship because it's alcohol is not good in and of itself. It's morally neutral. So it well, will, I would say it is good in and of itself because it's a substance of creation. Well, right, right. in in as much as it exists, and you right, know, right, but but it, but it can be abused, right, and that's where the immorality comes into play when mm-hmm. it's overindulged, when it's in when when it is indulged in a way that's contrary to reason. Would it be more correct to say drinking alcohol is morally neutral? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's not good or bad either way. It depends on well, what is Saint your Thomas, intent behind Saint Thomas it. Thomas Aquinas would say that there's really no sort of moral neutral ground. So anything we do that if it's if it's in accord with reason mm-hmm. and not contrary to reason, that it's morally good. Is he speaking specifically? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so like the, nothing that you do is morally neutral. You right. have intent Right, and right, purpose right. Okay, behind yeah, it. Correct, but correct. In correct. general, drinking alcohol. He's talking about moral action. There's no act. The, the action is, of it. There's no act that is morally neutral. It's mm-hmm. either going to be morally good or morally bad. Based on the person who's correct. doing it. Yeah. Correct. correct. Okay. Well, and G.K. Chesterton said you should drink when you don't have to. So so it's not like if you're sad, you shouldn't be drinking. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, if, it, if it's excessive celebration, that's probably not a good time to drink. You should drink when you don't necessarily have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. If, if you come home and say, I need a drink. That's not you a good probably thing. need to pray, <laughs> right? So I mean, we didn't have to have a, a a glass of scotch last night to facilitate our conversation that we had around right. the table, which was very delightful. Which by was the a way. lot of fun. We were we were totally geeking out, yeah, <laughs> like total philosophy for hours. Yeah, it was so much fun. The argument from motion, the argument from. A contingency in the Summa Contra Gentiles, mm-hmm. according to Thomas's lingo. And the distinctions. And the distinctions. Oh, distinctions. Distinctions, <laughs> distinctions, distinctions. Yeah. I got that from old Tim Staples. <laughs> he would always say, I used to have this, I used to have this seminary professor. Distinctions, distinctions, distinctions. Mm-hmm. And it is true. Yeah. Exactly what we're doing now. Distinguishing between proper use of alcohol versus improper use of alcohol. I heard Patrick Coffin on Catholic Answers one time say this, and he may have been quoting somebody, I don't know, but he said, clarity before agreement. Amen. It's something very close. I got from Frank Sheed, Mm -hmm. clarity is beauty. (laughs) But I like this clarity before agreement because you have to establish your universe of discourse Mm -hmm. before you can even assess whether you agree or not, because otherwise you'll just be packed talking past each other that's what i, was I used to do for. lincoln douglas debate in high school and oh the, cool the very first thing you would do define your terms offer your definition here's i'm going to be using this term and here's my definition right. and so then if the person you're debating with they would offer a counter definition if they thought and you can't it, go any you can't go forward from until that. you come to an agreement on the definitions there's no point in debating carrying on to the actual topic right for example in, in discourse uh, concerning God's existence, if you're, if you're definite, that, that means a segment's coming up, right? I yeah. know. Okay. Well, on the other side of the break, yes, we'll talk about that. All right. Awesome. Well, we're here with Carla Broussard from Catholic Answers, Catholic.com, or CarlaBroussard.com. That is correct. Prepare the way is his book. Go check it out. We'll be right back. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. 
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan and Carlo Broussard, the Cajun, uncaging the truth. <laughs> we're gonna you keep coined that, right? Yes, yeah. and we're gonna keep doing it until it catches on. Right, it's pretty darn cool. <laughs> until I, like I hear it. somebody else say it, I'm gonna keep doing it. Awesome. In fact, I even we uh, I made a commercial for the radio station here, advertising that you're coming, and I put it in there. Thank you, David. I yeah. appreciate that. Brother. Yeah. Thanks for helping me out, man. Yeah. Well, you me didn't listen some to the kind of label. Right? You, yeah. did, you didn't listen to the commercial, so you better be careful before you say thank you. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, right, right at the end of the break, there you were talking about, uh, you know, the defining our terms and right. establishing a universe of discourse. Yeah. 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 I was just gonna use the example if we're talking about God's existence, and you think that. I'm trying to prove some super powerful being within the universe beyond what we can visibly perceive, like Zeus or something, like some sort of Olympian god who mm-hmm. exists somewhere you know, on a mountain up in the clouds that we could possibly empirically observe one day, right? Right. Well, then we're not going to get anywhere, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm going to be trying to prove the existence of some reality that's beyond and outside the physical universe, immaterial, that you cannot empirically observe in principle, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to establish the definition, or at least a working definition, of God in order to pursue and begin the quest of trying to find and see if we can arrive at knowledge of the existence of God. And this is, Aquinas deals with, deals with this in the Summa Theologia and saying how, you know, we don't know the essence of God, and we can't start out knowing the essence of God, because that would be circular, right? So like we know exactly what we're trying to look for, how, to can, how can you begin the quest, right? Why would you even begin the quest if you know exactly what you're looking for uh, type of thing, if you know the full essence of God? Mm-hmm. But what he does say is that we can, what we're looking for is a cause of these certain effects, because we're starting with effects and reasoning to God as cause. So we're looking for the ultimate cause of motion. We're looking for the ultimate cause of existence. We're looking for the ultimate cause of the gradation of being within things, of a hierarchy of being, right? And so we can define God, we can have a working definition of God as the cause of. So for example, uh, this is a helpful example that I've learned from a, a philosopher. If I have a key in my wardrobe and every morning I wake up and the key is lying on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. I, I ask, well, why is that? And I'm looking for a key mover, right? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to find the cause of the movement of the key. Yeah. And that's a sufficient enough working definition in order to begin the quest. And so when we arrive at the ultimate cause of motion or the ultimate cause of existence itself, then we're arriving at something that we can deduce to say, yeah, this is immaterial beyond physical universe, because if it's pure existence, it can't be restricted or have any sort of boundaries, such as being in a spatial location or even having a body of some mm-hmm. sort, right? And so, uh, so yeah. So, And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the Catholic faith is that it embraces science, it embraces the natural world. You know, things that Luther rejected, you know, he said that logic is a whore. Mm-hmm. Um, the I- Islam rejects the use of logic in order to come to the realization of God. But as Catholics, we don't do that. We appreciate and understand and really preach the natural law because it's important for the reason you just said, that we can look at effects and ultimately get back to God. Right. Um, and that that is 
why it's true that he when the Bible says that creation, all of his creation points to him. Right. Um, Indeed, it does. That's, and that's it, important. Yep, and it does so in various ways. You know, we can look at the fine tuning of the various physical properties of the universe. And that can point us in the direction of an intelligent being and give mm-hmm. us probable knowledge that there's some intelligence behind it all. Or we can look at various features of the universe, such as motion and what we call in philosophy teleology or final causality, where things, activity, are inherently pointed to or directed to some goal or end, right? And that not only leads to probable knowledge that there's an intellect and an, uh, you know, a, an ultimate mover of things, uh, a shaker and a baker, right? Uh, but but that it's not only probable knowledge, but metaphysically necessary, uh-huh. right? So we can look at the universe and the various features of the universe and use those features to begin reasoning back to God in our quest for God. And that's what we see in Aquinas's five ways and a variety of other arguments as well. And it's a beautiful thing. And mm-hmm. we, were, we were doing that last, last night, night, right? Yep. And yep. I think this is a good transition into our topic today. Uh, yeah. Because we're, we're going to talk about sexual ethics. Um, and sexual ethics, uh, I think that you would say, we get a lot of that from the natural law, from right. the teleology. When we look at the sexuality of man and woman, we right. say, well, what is it for? That's What's the right. end? And that, and that tells us now how it should be used. In, Amen. You know, so, yeah, speaking of the terms, you just threw out a, a big term there, teleology. I mentioned it earlier. That comes from the Greek word telos, which simply means end or go. Mm-hmm. So teleology is the study of ends, excuse me, the study of goals. Those, uh, those goals or ends to which a particular activity of something is directed. And it's not an end or a goal that's imposed from the outside, like the end of the microphone, the goal of the microphone, the telos of the microphone is to amplify the voice. But that's a goal that's imposed upon the material by an intelligent being. We call this extrinsic teleology. So the, 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 the direction to the goal of the thing is imposed upon it from the outside. But there are some things that have a directedness right, a sort of orientation to a specific goal in its activity, inhering within it by nature. It belongs to its nature to naturally be directed to that particular end or goal. Fruit trees, nature is fruit. Given the kinds of things it is. So if we take the tree outside, right, mm-hmm. we realize that the tree behaves and acts in a way that belongs to the kind of thing that it is, and its activity is naturally. We don't we don't impose upon the tree the order, the order and the orientation to sink roots deep into the ground in order to take in nutrients and provide stability for itself and for it to produce leaves. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't impose that. We discover that. So that nat that ordination to those goals by through its activity is natural to it. So it's intrinsic, right? Mm -hmm. It's an intrinsic teleology. Philosopher Ed Fazer gives a great example of, uh, you know, like vines, certain vines that you'll see in in the jungle or something, right? Um, So for example, you can take, we look at those vines and the vines grow, et cetera, naturally, you know, we discover what they do. We don't impose their natural tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. However, if we take those vines and we construct it into 
like a hammock, right, for Tarzan. Okay, so what's the purpose of the hammock in order to lay on it and to support a body, etc.? But that's an imposed teleology. Yeah. Whereas the line, the vines growing and then taking, you know, uh, taking in certain nutrients, etc., to continue to grow, that's something that's in that inheres within it. So there's extrinsic teleology like the microphone, but then there's intrinsic teleology like the tree and the way it behaves. And so, but but. And you brought up a very important point. This establishes the basis for beginning to examine what is good for certain things and what is bad for mm-hmm. certain things. Because we cannot make sense of good and bad unless we know the teleology. It's the teleology, it's the directedness to the certain end or goal that's going to help us determine and come to know what is good or bad for a thing. So, for example, we take the artifact of the microphone. We know its goal is to amplify the voice. If the microphone doesn't achieve that end, it's a bad microphone. If this this thing stops working, you're going to chunk it, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a bad microphone. Why? Because it's not achieving that for which it is made. The activity that uh, is directed to a certain goal, if it doesn't achieve that goal, then it's a bad microphone. We look at the tree outside, right? We know that the tree naturally is ordered to sink roots deep into the ground, to take in nutrients, and to provide stability for the tree. And when it does that, we say it's a good tree. Mm-hmm. So notice we determine with, uh, if it's a good instance of the kind based upon what its activity is naturally ordered to, right? Designed mm-hmm. to do. If the roots if the roots aren't seeking deep, deep into the ground and are shallow and aren't taking in the nutrients, or you, you, know, you cut off the roots and it withers away, and it's a bad tree, right? Let me ask you this. Um, so taking this tree, it would be intrinsic to the cherry tree, to grow cherries. An extrinsic teleology could be when you cut it down and turn it into a chair. That is correct. So now the wood, it's not its intrinsic teleology, but it's now you've made it into something else. That's right. Does the good, when we make these judgments about this is a good chair or a bad chair or a good tree or a bad tree, does it matter whether the teleology we're using to base those judgments on if it's intrinsic or extrinsic? Does an intrinsic teleology have therefore a higher ranking of good and bad versus an extrinsic well, one? Well, the, the, the microphone is going to be good or bad, but that goodness or badness is dependent upon the intelligence that determined the end or the goal or the teleology of the thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the tree, we're talking about a good or a bad tree, but that goodness or badness is independent of what we think about the tree. It's dependent upon the very nature of the tree itself. Mm-hmm. So we, we're still able, but here's where the doctrine of analogy comes in, right? So when we talk about a good microphone, it's similar to the goodness of the tree, but there's dissimilarity as well. Because that good, the goodness of the tree outside, that's intrinsic teleology. We're, we're, we're speaking of intrinsic teleology. The goodness of the microphone is extrinsic. So there's a dissimilarity there, mm-hmm. but we can still make sense of goodness and badness. And as we'll see on the other side of the break, we can apply these under, this understanding of good and bad to even for us as human beings when it comes to moral goodness and moral badness. Awesome. Yes. All right. We're here with Carlo Broussard. This is the Catholic Man Show. If you're overdosing on manliness, turn down the volume. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show here with Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers. Check out his book, Prepared the Way. You can get it on shop.catholic.com. Or your local Catholic bookstore. Yes, or Amazon. Yeah, but don't get it there. I mean, like... Might as well just go ahead and, and get it from your local Catholic bookstore. Local Catholic book and gift store, shop, shop.catholic.com. Those are both good options. I mean, it'll work on Amazon. You and can, those are examples of extrinsic teleology. Yeah. <laughs> and pose directedness upon mm-hmm. software. If the and book is the end, program. you know, there's a better way to... To get it will work if you need the. It's better to do it on Amazon than not do it at all. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> so right before the break, we were talking I'll about raise my glass to that yeah. one. <laughs> to that one. We were talking about the uh, internal and external teleology of certain ends, yeah. specifically sexual. And so my question was uh, in between the breaks, which we should have just continued <laughs> recording. But my my question is is the internal teleology of sexual nature is going yeah. to be what what you said marriage, but my what I initially said was twofold. Yeah, procreation, the procreation and unity of love. Yeah. And so my question was also then, is there an external teleology of sexual nature that is in accord with the moral natural law? Right, and, and it's a good question. So the, your, your question basically is, can you engage, uh, can you voluntarily use the sexual powers and direct them to certain ends or purposes in a way that conflicts if we ask that question in a way that conflicts or is inconsistent with the natural teleology, which is inherent direction to procreation and unity of love, the answer is no. That would constitute immorality. But can you involuntarily engage the sexual powers within the context of the marital act and direct it to certain purposes that would be consistent with achieving the ends of procreation and unity of love? Well, then the answer would be yes. The voluntary use of the sexual powers is legitimate only if when it is consistent with. So that's the determining criterion. Mm-hmm. Is it consistent with the natural goals of the sexual powers, such as procreation and unity of love? But it doesn't and have to uh, take both of those on. It doesn't have to fulfill both of those ends. It must be ordered. ordered but it doesn't have to fulfill. But it ha- doesn't necessarily have to achieve <laughs> The end. So, like procreation, obviously, right. there are going to be some cases in engaging in the sexual act where the actual end of procreation is not actually achieved, right? Due to either engaging in the sexual act during infertile periods, or old age, or yeah. the woman's pregnant, or accidental circumstances where it just doesn't happen, right? So it's your not- kids walk into the room. <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that's why they make that's locked why, doors. Yeah, yeah. That's why parents' bedrooms have locks on. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it must be, but the act must be engaged in in a way that's at least order to it. So, for example, here's an example that philosophers often use. You know, a baseball team is, this is imposed teleology, right? But we can still use it as an example. A baseball team is constructed in a way in order to winning games. That's the end goal, to win the game. But just because the baseball team doesn't win the game, it doesn't follow from that that the baseball team is no longer ordered to the winning of the game. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. But even though the baseball team doesn't happen to achieve the goal of winning the game, it's still okay to play the game and for the baseball team to to play, right? Now, consider... Even if you know you will not win the game. 
Sure. Even if it's like Amen. this is a little league team versus you know <laughs> right. the St. Louis Cardinals, but it's still legit to engage in the act of playing the game, even though you know it's not going to actually achieve the end goal of win. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. now, consider this scenario: you have a team that gets paid off by the other team to throw the game, so they voluntarily engage in the game, ordered to winning, while actively frustrating the achievement of the goal of right. winning yeah then we would say that's wrong or we th- or we think of a fight right in boxing the, the 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 goal of the of the of the fight is to win the fight you get paid to throw the fight we say no no that's a no-go right because you're voluntarily engaging in this game in this action that's ordered toward winning and you're voluntarily frustrating the achievement of that goal we we can look at any sport right and say to voluntarily engage in the sport while actively intending to frustrate the achievement of the goal voluntarily we say that's absurd that's irrational that's why in the heck are you engaging in the game to begin with right Right. you ought to just not do it at all Mm -hmm. and i think that analogy is helpful within the sexual arena that there is a certain goal directedness inherent goal directedness in the sexual act itself contrary and unlike basketball or boxing or baseball this goal directedness of the sexual act is inherent within our sexual powers within the nature of our sexual powers and the sexual act itself something we discover rather than impose and so if we're going that's the hypothetical if we're going to engage in this act voluntarily speaking then we ought to engage in the act in a way that's consistent with its natural goals what it's what nature orders it we do to. that with everything except when it comes to the sexual nature. i yeah. mean indeed it's true it's i true. mean i don't try to look with my mouth because <laughs> that's not what the end goal of my mouth is and you don't try to hear with your eyes right but as soon as you get below the belt then all things are off all things are off yeah it's it's it's, a, it's literally irrational i mean because mm-hmm. this is the only it seems to be the only arena where teleology has no role to play, right? right yeah. Where which is we, bizarre? Where we totally reject what it's naturally ordered to, and don't use that as a standard for judging appropriate behavior and inappropriate behavior. However, I, 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 let me retract. I'm going to retract what I just said. It is it is not true that that all things all teleology is off in the sexual act, and here's why. We, we Even within our modern culture, as, as sex-crazed as our culture is, there is still intuitive recognition of at least one aspect of teleology in the sexual act, and that is unitive love, or at least right. consensual, or consensual sexual activity. That's one aspect that our culture still recognizes we need to reverence and respect. So the whole Me Too movement, right? And, and, you know, the, the Weinstein effect and when all that blew up, you know, a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a piece on this. You can check it out at Catholic.com or Colobrusor.com where I reflect upon this phenomenon of the Weinstein effect and ask the question, well, you know, why is it that sexual coercion is immoral, right? Number one, it's because we recognize within our culture that 
we are engaging in, you know, people who, who are uh, guilty of sexual coercion or engaging in this sexual act that's supposed to be free, right? We're recognizing this act is ordered to free activity, consent, right? And it's ordered, we recognize it's ordered to unitive love, which is supposed to be free. So to engage in this act that's naturally meant to express love in a way that's inherently contrary to love, we recognize that's wrong. That's immoral, mm-hmm. right? It's also contrary to procreation. That's right. Because, Amen. Uh, that, I mean, I think it's important because if a woman is raped and she goes to the hospital and it can be definitively determined that conception has not taken place, she's allowed to use birth control methods in order to prevent conception right. from taking place because it wasn't free. It wasn't voluntary, sure. you know? Sure. Um, and so typically contraception is generally a no-go, but there is a small... You know, there is that caveat that right, because it wasn't it wasn't the marital act, right? It was because it wasn't free, right? Mm-hmm. But the point being in sexual coercion is that we in our culture at least recognize some aspect of the teleology of sex and say we ought to reverence it. So my argument is, if we ought to reverence that teleological aspect of the sexual act, namely that it should be at least free, and more often than that meant to express love and to engage in the act in such a way that's going to not be free and not express love, we say that's no go, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're going to reverence that teleological aspect, well then why aren't we reverencing the other teleological aspect of the sexual act, namely procreation? Right. If violating the unitive love aspect of the sexual act is wrong, well, then it would follow that violating, voluntarily violating the, the procreative. procreative dimension of the sexual act would be immoral as well. Why? Because you're treating the sexual act in a way, you're treating the sexual act as if it is something that it's not. Mm-hmm. In sexual coercion, you're treating a fr- what is meant to be a free act as a not free act, a loving act as an anti-love act. And so, too, in contraception and same-sex sexual, same sex sexual activity, you're treating the act that is meant to be procreative by nature, but it becomes anti-procreative. So in sexual coercion, it's a love-anti-love act. In contraception and same-sex sexual activity, it is a procreative-anti-procreative act. And that, my friends, is a contradiction. So let me ask you this, because uh, intent is always very important when it comes to whether action is moral or immoral. Actually, it comes into play concerning the culpability of engaging in an immoral act. Okay, yes, If yes. the act is neutral, well, then the intent will determine the moral species. Mm-hmm. But if the act itself is intrinsically wrong, well, then intent only comes into play concerning their culpability. Doesn't justify the Okay, yes, yeah. so whether it's a sin or not a sin, yeah. Okay, so uh, it's there's a lot of examples of... Uh, a couple engaging in sex without the intent of creating children. Right. And I'm going to finish my question on the other side of the break. because Indeed. It's a very important question. I think I know where you're going. Right. Okay. Does that mean I have to have 12 million children? Well, that's not my question. <laughs> okay. Because the answer is no. No to that. Right. But <laughs> anyway, we'll be right back. This is the Catholic Man Show with Adam Minahan and David Niles. Carla Broussard is our special guest. Stand by. That's good music. It achieves the end. It does. <laughs> Which is the head bob. Amen. 
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan and Carlo Broussard. Hey, yeah! Just, just doing some head bobbing. It feels right. It does. Uh... We're here with you, Carlo, and you have a book that recently came out. It's called Prepare the Way. Well, actually, a year old now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah, somewhat, recent. somewhat recent. Yeah, It was a year in April. And it's all about? Preparing the way for Jesus. Yeah, so what I do is I coach you in strategies. It's sort of a how-to manual, step-by-step, Socratic questions, strategies in helping remove obstacles for unbelievers and skeptics to truth, God, Christianity, and just religion in general. Jesus and the Catholic Church. So how can I believe in truth when so many people believe so many different things? How can I believe in God when there's so much evil in the world? How can I believe in Jesus when I don't even know if I can trust these things called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So those are the sort of obstacles, and I coach you in strategies on how to remove those obstacles in order to prepare this way. So it's, you know, the voice of John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, lowering the mountains, some things, or some obstacles, or the presence of something Mm -hmm. that stands in the way of Jesus approaching the individual to share the gifts of truth and life. Sometimes it's like a valley where there's an absence of something, absence of evidence perhaps, where Jesus is like on the other side of the valley. So our goal is to lower those mountains, fill those valleys like John the Baptist did, a voice crying out in the wilderness of our culture and removing these obstacles to make a straight path for our Lord who approaches the individual bearing the gifts of truth and life. And there's, you know, kind of short chapters, so you mm-hmm. can read a chapter within 20 minutes or so, you know. And, nice. And uh, put it down and pick up an, another time and or just jump pick, to some other chapter. It. Pick yep. the one that or your friend has a problem with. Amen, yeah. amen. Yeah. So it's not a sort of beginning-to-end type book. Um, and so I think there's 34 obstacles that I deal oh, with good. totally uh, in total. And so, yeah, so that's the book Prepare the Way. And it's about a year old now, and I'm waiting and excited for my next book coming out in the fall uh, through Catholic Answers Press called Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. And so the challenge is how can the Catholic Church teach X when the Bible says Y? The old challenge was where is that in the Bible? But a Catholic wasn't required necessarily to meet that challenge because it operates on sola scriptura, and that's not a premise we buy. We could just say, yeah, well, it's not in the Bible. Okay, I got tradition. I got the magisterium. No problem. But this challenge is, how can the Catholic Church teach X when the Bible says Y? We have to meet that challenge because as Catholics, we believe that whatever we believe, at least it can't contradict Scripture. Mm -hmm. And if the claim is that this belief does contradict scripture, but then we need to meet that challenge and show that it doesn't. So that's what I do in my forthcoming book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a good book. Yeah, I think so. Before we we keep going, uh, if you've been enjoying this conversation with Carlo, we've we've actually talked about maybe bringing you back out for a a three-part series. Amen. Uh, We've had uh, other people who've come in to the studio and had live interviews, and the only way we can do that is by your support. So you can go to patreon.com slash the Catholic Man Show and support us. And one thing that's different between... Our, our podcast and all, a lot of other podcasts is Dave and I do not take any money ourselves. So all the money that's supported goes right back into the show to be able to have people like this right here, Carlo Broussard, on our show. And you can do something like what Sir Chad McAuliffe did and donate $25 a month being the friend tier by going to patreon.com slash the Catholic Man Show. Okay. So Sweet. Carlo, right at the end of the last segment, 
I was going to ask you this question. Okay, so uh, I think we all can think of scenarios where it's a couple would engage in the sexual act without the intent of procreation. Right. Um, and that's that's fine if you're an elderly couple or even if you're just using NFP and you know sure. that this is a non-fertile time. Right. Um, but, and that's and that's morally morally licit. As because on condition that the act itself is still naturally ordered to its pro- right. appropriate ends and that nothing has been done to manipulate the act in a way that would frustrate the achievement of those ends. Okay, so my question is, can you think of a scenario that would be morally licit for a couple to engage in the sexual act without the intent of achieving the unitive aspect, the unitive end of procreation? Um, because it seems to me, just thinking about it right now, hmm. that you could not morally separate that end from the act, whereas you could, you the as far very as the often the procreation is naturally separated. Well, that yeah, hmm. I mean, my my initial guess is no. Um, I mean, I can think of a scenario where that happens, but it's not the intent. Where maybe a couple is engaging in foreplay as a just working up to the sure, the unitive sure. aspect of the sexual embrace. Yeah, but and even, then their even, kids walk in the room so, or something well, but an even, earthquake but, or, but you know. yeah, but but the, the even that act but even that act is still ordered to that unitive in. Right, but in those scenarios it was their intent to achieve the unitive aspect and it's not their fault, you know. But see the the, the, the difference is is that the the unitive ass there's a, there's a distinction between the procreative end and the unitive end. I mean, because the unitive end is one of a spiritual nature, whereas the procreative end is, as you know, philosopher Ed Fazer says, it's episodic, right? There, Ooh, good it's, word. It's sort of I like, like that word. this climax moment that's it's, it's empirical. It's concrete, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's either there, or it's not. Whereas the unitive end is sort of this end that's that's it's, it's it's a spiritual nature so it's not like hmm. yes we've achieved the unitive in or no accidentally we unfortunately have not been able to actually achieve that in whereas in the procreative in you know it the act is still ordered to it but in actuality it might not be achieved you might not actually achieve procreation right mm-hmm. even so, though the unitive end finds its culmination in the procreative, yeah, the, the yeah. one flesh union, you know, Correct. that you have to give that one flesh a name nine months later. That's right. And the unitive end comes in in a, variety, a couple of different ways. I, I, I articulate this and explain it in my thesis for my master's in, uh, for my master's in philosophy that the, pro, the procreative is first, right? It's the first end that we naturally come to know. And it is from the procreative that the unitive comes into play. So two ways. Number one, in as much as the sexual act is ordered to generating children, you need the union of the spouses in order to properly rear the children. Okay. Right? So the act has the end of the unitive bond to bind the two engaging in the act. Why? For the sake of rearing the children properly, to keep the, the, the spouses together the man and the woman together to properly rear the child, because for like St. Thomas Aquinas and many others, it's there's a vari- there's various degrees of the procreative end. So you have the proximate end of getting semen into the vagina, mm-hmm. right? And I hope that's appropriate. It's the man show for the yeah. man show. It's okay. okay, 
We're just talking biology here. Right, right. Yeah. Don't send any letters to Adam and Dave, okay? <laughs> That's the proximate goal, right? So this is why withdrawal or spilling the seed as Onan did in Genesis 38 yeah. is immoral. That's, Didn't work out well for him. That's contrary to the procreative end. The next degree of the pro- procreative end, you might say, right, is the actual conception, right, of the child. But then also, too, related to the procreative end or a part of the procreative end, as many philosophers would say, is the woman bearing the child. That that belongs to the union of the spouses. That's a part of the procreative end. Hmm. This is why surrogacy is a violation of the procreative end, many philosophers will argue. But then you also have, for Aquinas, the rearing of the child. This is why fornication is immoral, because it's engaging in an act while vi- uh, voluntarily violating the procreative end in as much as you're br- uh, possibly bringing a child in an environment that's not conducive to its proper rearing and you you don't have the intent of keeping the unity forever yeah right i mean well i mean fornic- most of the time in fornication that is the case right? right so so notice how the procreative is sort of the determining factor for the unitive now here's another way which i find beautiful in order for our procreation to be properly human because animals procreate. I mean, well, we wouldn't call it procreation, we'd just call it reproduction, right? Propagating the human species. In order for our act of propagating the human species to be properly human, it must be integrated into that which makes us properly human, namely relationships of knowledge and love. And that is what makes it properly a human act as opposed to an act of the brutes in propagating their species. So the procreative dimension of the sexual act determines the man-woman aspect, and the rational dimension of the act, the integration into a relationship of knowledge and love, is what determines the unitive aspect. So in order for the procreation to be properly human, it must be integrated and connected with the unitive. So the unitive comes into play with the procreative. Uh, and so you see, this is why the church is always taught that they're inseparable in the objective order, right? Uh, so the, the, when we engage in the act, it must always be in a way that's consistent with these two ends. This is why we would say sexual coercion is immoral, mm-hmm. because you're engaging in an act that's naturally ordered to unitive love, but you're ascribing, you imposing something upon the act order to love that's not loving. The meaning that you impose upon the act in sexual coercion is anti-love, mm-hmm. contrary to love. But the meaning of the act is love. Similarly, the meaning of the act is procreative. So the meaning that we impose upon the act subjectively needs to be consistent with what it is objectively. So you have the unitive and the procreative and in order for it to be properly human we need to ascribe the same meaning to both procreative and unity boom it's been a blast yeah. Carla. Wow. Thanks oh, for man, this out was too us. much fun yep just bring Hope. me back man we'll do it again Let's all right again yeah. soon. <laughs> all right we're on the lord's team the winning side so raise your glass and cheers to jesus